Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 301, recorded May 18th, 2011. Going Random, part two. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro Corporation, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. For a free trial of the Astaro Security Gateway in your business, call 877 the number 4 ASTARO. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security online, your privacy too, and here he is, our security guru Steve Gibson from grc.com. He's the man behind Spinrite and uh, many other wonderful inventions. Can we call software an invention? Oh, unfortunately, too many people do. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, been that's, a hot I, topic oh, lately, boy. this issue it's, of software. This, you never did patented any of your stuff, did you? Um, I never did for myself. I did some subcontracting for a while where the the people I was doing the work for said, oh, we got to get patents on this. Um, and in fact, I um, I did apply for one patent on a CryptoLink technology, which would allow it to stealth its open ports so that you could be running a CryptoLink server, but no bad guys could see it. Essentially, it's a single packet authentication technology. Hmm. Um, I did get the response back from the patent office just just recently, and they said, ah, this looks like bunk. Really? (laughs) They refused it? Well, oh yeah, and apparently that's the dance you do, and it of course enriches the attorneys because so far I've only already spent ten thousand dollars on this thing. So it's like okay, so I have uh, I've on my list of things to do is to figure out what it is they're complaining about, and then you know this is just the way it works now. Oh, okay. As you say, no, that doesn't apply because of this, right. and you you apparently didn't read paragraph three B because that's what's different about this and which makes this unique. I mean, we did a full search and nobody else has done this before. So, you know, it looks like it's uh, a new thing. I'm I'm only doing it though because uh there's some provision in the tax code that allows income derived from the sale of all substantial rights and title to a patent to be treated as long-term capital gains. Oh, that's good. And that's actually actually the way I sold my light pen to Atari was uh, there, I had patents on various aspects of the hardware, and so I was able to get the income that I received treated as capital gains. It was much more beneficial than regular income. Much, a much lower tax rate, yeah. But my CPA has recently told me that I'm too close to GRC for me to license it to the corporation. Because uh, I own all of GRC. You can't really license it to yourself. So I can't. So I, right. fr- frankly, I'm probably just going to abandon the effort. The only reason I was doing, I mean, I, I absolutely don't care about, and I'm actually sort of against patentability. And I also thought, well, it would give somebody something to own someday if they wanted to buy it from me, but that's probably never going to happen either. So it's like, eh, I don't think I want to keep sending money to the attorneys in in wheelbarrow size quantities yeah no kidding i know that yeah feeling. yeah so today we're going to uh, complete our um, going random uh conversation from two weeks ago exactly we uh we started sort of laid the foundation for 
why it is that that crypto systems need randomness. I'm going to review that briefly after we catch up with the week's news, but then talk about how we get randomness from machines that are designed not to be random, which, of course, is our computers. You know, every time you multiply or add, you want the same result. So how can you ever get a machine to give you something random? And the answer is you can't. But that's not good enough. So <laughs> we still need it, even if we can't have it. Well, we're going to get it. You ask Steve will explain how in just a, in just a little bit. Um, maybe the, I'll tell you what, before we get started, because we also, as you said, we have security news, and I'm sure we have some breaches to talk about. I don't know what's And neat news. stuff, actually, this week. Oh, time. good. Before yep. we do do that, let me talk a little bit about our friends at Astaro. And you've probably seen their uh, Astaro in the news uh, Sophos has acquired them. A really, I think one of uh, one of our favorite uh, uh, software security firms uh, and security kind of uh, protection firms. It's a really nice, um, a nice thing for uh, Astaro, I think. But uh, I do want to mention uh, Astaro because they make, of course, the very very good Astaro Security Gateway, and they still offer it, and it is still something you're going to want. In fact, it's something we're putting into the Twit Brickhouse. Uh, we will have. Um, I think two or three Astaro security gateways, plus their uh, their uh, you know protected wireless access points in there. So we're I'm actually really excited about this. Um, we're going to be using it to not only protect everybody inside the brick house from the bad guys out there because it is a unified threat management system, but use some of the additional Astaro security gateway features, um, including uh, the ability to do quality of service and uh, bandwidth shaping. Because for instance. We want our video calls and our streaming to be prioritized over everyday surfing, things like that. Uh, I suspect we'll start uh, instituting uh, email signing. I've been doing that digitally uh, you know, as long as I've sent email, but now everybody in the office can transparently. It's got that all built in, and I can't wait to use the uh, SSL, uh, VPN over SSL, another really nice feature you get with the Astaro Security Gateway. If you're small or medium Business Network needs superior protection from spam, from viruses, from hackers. Complete, easy-to-use VPN, intrusion protection, content filtering, all with an industrial-strength, state-of-the-art firewall in a single, easy-to-use, high-performance appliance. You've got to check out the Astaro Security Gateway. Now, you can call them and get a demo for your business, 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. Or you can also uh, visit them online at A-S-T-A-R-O. Com. You know, I don't think we'll need the Astaro Command Center yet because that lets you control multiple gateways from a single dashboard. But once we grow, as we grow, you know, we'll have Astaros in our different branch offices. We'll be able to control them. They have a world map that shows where the gateways are located and complete monitoring capabilities, threat levels, resource usage. I mean, it's this is a power tool and yet simple to use. You know, uh, Russell Tammany, who's doing our IT, he's our contract IT guy, uh, used another product in the past. And I said, we want to use Astaro because we love Astaro. And he looked at it and he said, oh yeah, this is great. And I said, you want me to send you to the Astaro certification, the class? He said, no, no, this is really simple. I can do it. I can figure it out. And he's, he's going with it. So I'm really pleased. This is incredible. And as we grow their active, active clustering will allow us to grow uh, our, our installation with as many as 10 Astaro security gateways. So you don't need additional load balancing or anything. It just you know, it, it, it scales with you. So I love this product. I'm thrilled that we're going to be able to use it, and I encourage you to give it a try. ASTARO.com or call 877, the number 4, ASTARO, to try an Astaro Security Gateway in your place of business. 
That's 877-427-8276. Starro. Now, it is time to get the latest news of the security world for Mr. Well, so there's something interesting going on with Mozilla that it's not really an update, but it's a, a planned update. Essentially, Mozilla is getting a little annoyed with the fact that 12, pe- 12 million people are still back on Firefox 3.5. Um, How many? Getting- 12 million. Wow. They're, they're the people who do not listen to us, although I can't really say much because I'm on 3.6. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, and, and not willing to move until I'm sure that 4 settles down and all, of, all the add-ons that I have, cannot live without now are compatible with version 4. Which, is this analogous to Microsoft moving people off older IE versions? Is it insec- is 3.5 insecure in that way? No, I think it's a matter of the problem of, well, I would say one of the other reasons Microsoft moves people off of old versions is they just get tired or too stretched, you know, stretched too thin of supporting them because, you know, I mean, Mozilla is an open source project and it's being done for the good of humanity. But for people to stay to stay back on 3.5 as they're, for example, fixing things that, that come from the common code base that all versions of Firefox share, they've, they've got to they've got to take the time and trouble to sort of remember what 3.5 was, and then make the changes that are relevant to 3.5 when they're also fixing 3.6 and 4.0. So, so here's the news: five version five of Firefox will be released on June 21st. So here we are. What? what? They this just did May- four. I know. So here, here we are on, on May 18th. And so, literally four weeks from now, we're going to have five already. Wow. So, what they're going to do is on June twenty first, uh, and their goal is to get everybody off of three point five by the end of June. So, on June twenty first, with the release of version five of of Mozilla Firefox, um, on that day, version. The, the, they will release the next version of 3.6. Now, right now, I'm, for example, using the latest, which is 3.6.17. So on, on June 21st, they will release 3.6.18 or 1.8. I can feel more comfortable saying it that way because that's right. Uh, and that will be offered to everybody on 3.6.17 like the one I have now, but also those using 3.5.19. So the point is, and this is the first time they will have ever done this, they're going to be automatically updating people to an, uh, to a major revision change, not just a minor revision change. Um, so the good news is 3.5 and 3.6 are very close to each other. But essentially, without they're not going to be asking people or requiring 3.5 users to do anything because they've come to the conclusion these people aren't. I mean, they're just sitting back on 3.5 and allowing and, you know, and staying current with that, but they're not making the move to 3.6. 
very, very much like I'm staying with 3.6 and haven't made yet the move to, to 4.0. But for with this on, on June 21st, they will silently upgrade 3.5.x users to the latest 3.6, essentially, and essentially retiring the, the whole support and, and, and forward moving updates for 3.5. So, I mean, if that weren't enough to move people off of it, if they were security conscious and, you know, Firefox users tend to be, um, then the fact that they're just making it automatic would do that. Now, what's interesting is they've got a bug. It's bug 650030, which prevents this from working. So on their bug list, the, the bug's title is Major Update Automation Should Support Background Updates, Not Just Advertised Ones. And, and so what they call a major update is, for example, a 3.5 to 3.6 change as opposed to, you know, updating the next decimal dot versions. And background updates are those where the next restart of Firefox automatically brings the user to the next version. So Firefox downloads it silently in the background and has it prepped and ready. So when you launch it, it just is running the newer one. And then what they call an advertised update is one where the user is prompted and needs to accept that before downloading and applying the update. So they, they need to fix this problem that they have. And when they do, they will update Firefox silently, and we're going to be saying goodbye to 3.5 on that day, and hello to 5, which, as you say, I mean, I was surprised, too. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. We, you know, we had 3 for a long time, although I did see some things. You may have run across it, too, Leo, where there was some commentary about the Mozilla project being too slow, that they were just moving too slowly and weren't weren't like keeping up with the pace that we're seeing, for example, from Chrome, which is, you know, really moving itself along and even IE. So I, I think they're, they're deliberately working to, um, to improve their, their, their rate of, you know, uh, add, adding features. To it's kind of silly because if, especially on Chrome, version numbering doesn't really mean anything. I mean, what's the difference in Chrome 10, 11? You tell me, I can't tell. Right. It's just changed. It just changed. So, uh, is there a version race? I mean, that's crazy. The version number race, yeah. that, that would be crazy. I, I think it's not so much numbering as the, the Mozilla people themselves feel like their whole process had become somewhat bogged down. Right. And so they're working to streamline the process so that they're, they're better able to just get stuff vetted and tested and beta tested and out to, to users. So that, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at Chrome thinking, hmm, you know. Looks pretty good. Of course, you've thought that a while ago. Oh, and, I love and made, Chrome. Yeah, and made the jump. Yeah, I'm a big Chrome fan. Yeah. So we've got some some bad news in the Mac space. Um, Ed Bot, who you and I have known forever, uh, who's been in the PC business forever, is a uh, has a column or a blog over on ZDNet, and he managed to get a hold of some Apple Care. An Apple Care employee who provides the Apple Care support and was and off sort of officially but anonymously interviewed this person about what 
the Apple Care people are experiencing relative to this Mac Defender problem that we've talked about. We, we introduced Mac Defender on this podcast a week or two ago, uh, noting that in the last couple of weeks, it was becoming a growing problem for Mac users, that Mac users were were not accustomed to, you know, fighting the virus wars that Windows users have been fighting for years. And and what was really interesting, so so Ed, Ed Bott in his blog posting posted a, a sanitized dialogue that he had with this Apple Care employee. And one of the things that really caught my eye, I thought was interesting, which was that because Mac users tend to believe that their Macs are impervious to these kinds of problems, they consequently tend to believe the Mac Defender pop-up, which is sometimes also calls itself Apple Security, but it's basically the same, the same code with just a different name. They tend to believe those to a much greater degree than Windows users do because Windows users are so beaten up at this point by all of this nonsense that, you know, our guard is up to a much greater degree. So the fact that Macs haven't historically had a big problem with viruses is giving these these newly created malware for, for Macs sort of a, a boost, a, a sort of a, a head start more than than would otherwise be the case, which I thought was really interesting. Um, what... What came out in this dialogue with this Apple Care Apple employee was that that it is true that the Macs are more secure at this point, or at least to this first generation malware, by needing to have the admin password in order to install themselves permanently in the machine. Yet social engineering is still being effective. And what we are seeing in general, I mean, if we looked at, at the, you know, the, the, the thousand mile view of, of the history of the last 10 years, what we're really seeing is, a, is a, as, as security is becoming more of a focus for people, as, as, as people are, in fact, doing a better job with security uh, and, our, and our operating systems are, are getting tightened up and, and, you know, there are just today far less obvious openings for for malware to get into machines it is social engineering even over on the windows side which is still catching people out and and getting them to install these things so so these the for example the mac defender problem th- this employee said that in the course of 2 weeks he went from maybe getting a call or two a day to more than half of the calls he now receives being Mac Defender problems. And that that Mac Defender does trick people into into give, having them put in the admin password that allows it to install into their system. And and the people he had spoken to had not fallen for you know the this fake purchase that uh, you know, enter your credit card information so you can purchase a software so that we're going to fix your system. But he had spoken to other Apple Care reps whose use whose users, when they called Apple for help, had 
input their credit card information. And the scam is, I thought this was interesting too, is that the software, even when they give it a good credit card information, says, oh, um, we were unable to process your card. Give us another one. <laughs> and in some cases, users went through like their five credit cards, putting them each in in succession. Which oh, of that's clever. <laughs> is... <laughs> now I understand why they kept. Wa- I mean, they would want. That. Yep. Yep. So, so they end. So the I have the to, malware... by the way, validate that it is it is uh, on the uh, rampage because I'm getting more calls on the radio show, but also yes. lots of calls from Windows users bit by the same thing, the same idea. You know. Oh yeah, I mean it, exactly. Um, the one thing that was a little disturbing was that the Apple Care employees had been instructed by Apple, despite the fact that it is easy to remove and easy to instruct people to remove, Apple Care has been told not to remove it for customers who call on the on the theory that customers should not be given the expectation that Apple Care will be responsible for these things. Apple is saying that's the role of antivirus. That is not something that falls within our purview. And this employee who Ed interviewed said, well, you know, I've I've helped some people out when they've explained their situation or they really needed help. I mean, he's had, I guess, I, I don't know what this thing shows people, but in the interview, they talk about you know, mothers screaming on the phone to Apple Care over the images that her children are being subjected to as a consequence of this being on their Macs. So whatever it does, apparently it's, you know, producing offensive imagery of some sort um, when when, when this happens. And so so Ed says, well, you know, aren't calls, Apple Care calls being monitored by Apple? And so if they heard you doing this, you could get yourself in trouble. And the guy said, yeah, I know, but, you know, we, we... even though Apple is saying we shouldn't help people, we we sometimes have no choice but to do that. So interesting, yeah, interesting. And in related news, there is now the first do-it-yourself malware kit for Mac OS X. Um, you know, famous there there have been famous you know Zeus and um, uh, Zeus is is probably the most well-known uh, malware kit for. Windows, and there's another one, SpyBot, I think, or um, it's Spy something. Um, anyway, there is now one just that, that is that is being percolating around the the underground forums. Uh, it's called the Wayland uh, Utani bot, and what's kind of fun for sci-fi uh, people, Wayland Utani was the name of the fictitious corporation that ran terraforming in the second Alien movie, in Aliens. Um, And their slogan was Building Better Worlds or something. So anyway, that's the name of this, is the Weyland-Yutani bot is what this do-it-yourself malware kit creates. Um, Brian Krebs was able to get into a Russian-language forum and have a dialogue with the author who provided him with a video. And there is a video on YouTube also of this thing operating, um, which shows the the various UI components of, you know, the, the, the builder and the admin panel and the fact that it supports encryption. 
Um, it's still low profile. Um, and at the moment, it supports what's called web injection and local form grabbing in Firefox and Chrome, uh, not yet Safari. Uh, web injection is the process whereby when you when a when a legitimate web page is displayed on your computer, like a, a banking web page, they will these these bots will now inject additional content into the page. For example, if you're only being asked normally by the bank for your username and password, the bot will add and your credit card CSC code and your billing address and things. It'll add additional fields, which so, so it's legitimately coming from the bank, yet you're providing much more information in response than you normally would and of course, this is them the malware gathering additional information so that they're they're able to to collect data um, so that they can steal more information from you. So wow, uh, this is this is I mean what we're we're beginning to see what was inevitable, Leo, and that is that the Mac is catching up as it is caught up in popularity as in, in or as it is catching up in popularity, it's now become a target for the bad guys. And it's going to be a problem for Mac users who at some point are no longer going to really be able to say it's a much more secure platform than Windows. So, but I need to say, I tweeted this earlier today when I ran across this, um, the, one of the coolest bits of wisdom and advice I've seen, um, Brian Krebs on a different blog posting of his quoted three things. He said, if you've installed a program, update it regularly. Okay, well, that's something our listeners here, you and me, know very say well. all the time. Yeah. We know very well. Number two, if you no longer need a program, remove it. And that's also, a, a, you know, one of my main focuses. I've, you know, I've, we talked about getting rid of Java if you don't need it because it's a problem. Uh, certainly disabling JavaScript if, if you don't need it and so forth. And just in general, getting rid of stuff you're not using because it's all baggage and it's it's just more opportunities. What he adds to that wisdom that we've commonly shared, which I think is just fantastic, is it is the best advice for protecting users from social engineering attacks. And that is, if you didn't go looking for a program, an add-on, or download, don't install it. Yeah, but that the is, problem is uh, people feel like they did, right? Because they got a warning that said you've got spyware, which looks like it's 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 designed to look like it came from the operating system. Yep. And then the offer to download a fix. So they, that's why they enter the password both on Windows and Mac. They go, well, yeah, I want to install this. Yeah, I know. Well, I asked for the, it. The, the, the other thing, the other main vector, for example, is um, a... a like the Kube uh, face on Facebook will, it will provide you a link and the dialogue that comes up says, oh, you need to install the, the following video player in order to play this video. And so the user goes, oh, well, that makes sense, you know, and so they do it. But, but my point is that the reason I really like what Brian says is if you didn't go looking for it, I mean, I, and I understand, Leo. This is what confuses people. But so this why that that's why this is so important. If you if, think about it, if you didn't go looking for a program, an add-on or download, don't install it. That is to say, 
when for, and unfortunately it also means it, i mean it applies to legitimate you you would not be a, you would not be um responding to legitimate offers also but you you would the idea would be if something is being offered to you treat it with skepticism right because you know that's what so that, that that's how these social right and these social engineering attacks are getting you is, if you see a message that makes your heart pound don't trust it <laughs> yeah i mean they really they the part of their success is they scare you so if that message scares you that should be a sign that maybe it's not all it is, looks to be well and but i the for me this decision point is was it offered to me or did i go get it right did i and did i go looking for it because i i think that's really i think mean, i just I, I i tweeted it because i thought that's exactly right you'd be skeptical I mean, to the point of just not doing it right. if something is offered to you as opposed to, I mean, and this is what you and I do, you know, because we sort of have that intuitively. It's like, oh, well, I'm going to go find this somewhere else or I'm going to go, yeah, you know, skeptical. do my own I'm Google skeptical. search. Yeah. yeah, do my own Google search well, to and find that's, the... That's exactly what I tell the radio audience. Good. Is if, it, see, I don't know if it's enough to say don't install it if you didn't go out looking for it because there are many of them running security software that would say, you know, would you like me to remove this virus? They see these messages. Although um, someone responding to my tweet this morning did say that he tells people, be you know, make sure you know what your antivirus program is. Yeah. And don't respond to different antivirus messages. Well, and there is no such thing as the Apple Security Center. <laughs> That's a Windows thing. And, uh, you know, I had a call on the radio show last week who said I was scanning my, my friend invited me, uh, was having problems with her computer. She invited me over. I scanned it uh, with uh, MSFT and it said, oh, I can't disinfect. You need the Windows Advanced Toolkit, which doesn't exist. Uh -huh. And I installed it and, you know, and I said, did it cost you any money? He said, yeah, it was $79. <laughs> I said, there is no such thing. <laughs> there is no Microsoft Advanced Toolkit, and and that yeah. the pro so it's know your operating system. Uh, don't don't be skeptical. And I think the Google is a very good tip, which is if if something like that pops up, just Google its name, because if it's malware, you will see hundreds of entries immediately that say, "Don't install that." Right, but also Leo, look at the fundamental effectiveness. Of of the of this new approach, well, the it's always been the case. Approach. Social engineering. In fact, Steve uh, Kevin Mitnick, our 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 favorite hacker, yep. wrote a whole book on the subject. That's the best technique. Yeah, social engineering. It it works. Yeah, too often. <sighs> so I just caught a little blurb that I wanted to um, inform our our listeners of. Um, that I just I just sort of made me shake my head, and that is that the. American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, uh, is is kind of keeping an eye on what law enforcement is doing, and I'm I'm glad they're doing that, keeping people honest. They filed a Freedom of Information Act, an FOIA request, asking for information about the FBI's warrantless wiretapping, the you know the FISA provision, uh, and for example, which ISPs. We're providing that information. You know, how was this being used? What was being done? And and who was the, the FBI working with? In court documents, which were filed in reply by the FBI, they, the FBI formally stated, 
Specifically, these businesses would be substantially harmed if their customers knew that they were furnishing information to the FBI. The stigma of working with the FBI would cause customers to cancel the company's services and file civil actions to prevent further disclosure of subscriber information. Oh. Oh. And so, so oh. I just think, you know, there's something we're doing wrong here if if that's the situation. That is, if it if the FBI is afraid to tell us what it's doing, then doesn't that seem wrong somehow? I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it's that that the that it's warrantless. That you know, without warrant, they're able to now use FISA to compel ISPs right. yeah. to spy on their users just because they want to, because they ask, and and then when when. Privacy rights organizations say, okay, well, you know, just tell us what this? you're doing. Yeah. yeah. Tell yeah. us what you're doing. You're a taxpayer funded yeah. organization. Yeah. What are you doing? They say, well, we can't, well, you know, we it can't. Bad for we, business. Yeah. If you knew your ISP was spying on you, you probably wouldn't use them. So yeah. we better not no tell kidding. you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come on. I Holy know. moly. Holy moly. So, also, just Thursday, new legislation was uh, put forth, I think it was in the Senate, with 11 co-sponsors, called uh, PIPA, the Protect Information Intellectual Property Act. So I, I so like the sound protect, of that one. I know. Well, now we know about the old unpronounceable acronym, Koika. the COICA, right, C-O-I-C-A, and that was Combating Online Infringement and Counterfeits Act. And and we know what it tended to stumble around doing because we covered the fact that they blocked out a top-level domain because some subdomain was, in fact, uh, you know, offering counterfeit purses or something. But they didn't realize that this was a multi-domain <laughs> hosting provider. And as a consequence, tens of thousands of other websites were taken down by mistake. So, whoops, um, the, the so-called domain seizure uh, didn't work so well. So It's going to turn me into a libertarian. They keep this stuff up, I'll tell you. I, I, I'm there, Leo. I know. So instead of domain seizure, the new PIPA, P-I-P-A, it would allow the Justice Department to, uh, I mean, if it passes, right now it's just introduced legislation, to allow the Justice Department to obtain court orders compelling ISPs DNS servers to stop returning results for particular websites, meaning that the sites would still be available outside the U.S. So rather than essentially removing domains from the root name servers, from the root servers on the Internet, they'll, they will instead send to ISPs I mean, I don't even know how what the mechanism would be because I mean, there's lots of ISPs and a, a gazillion DNS servers. But this plan is to to place filters in the in the results of DNS servers so that they won't so that lookups will fail. So it's like, okay, you know, I mean, that's not going to work either. The, the these these attempted sort of lame 
technological approaches to solving problems that are you know legitimately created by the nature of the internet and digital media are are bound to fail the, the you know if if you know i mean there's all kinds of ways around this if you're if you're trying to get this kind of content you can just use foreign dns servers they work just fine and you know there's there's way more of those than there are local isp dns servers so it's it just it's nuts I have to say, though, um, I was surprised by something I saw just the other day. Another of my recent tweets, actually, is that Netflix is now the number one source of traffic on the Internet. Yep. Which was, yep. I think, it's very cool. But what surprised me... giving Comcast ammunition. That's the unfortunate thing. Yeah, it is. But what surprised me is that BitTorrent is number two. And I, I'm, <laughs> you, you obviously don't know many BitTorrent users. I don't. I, I'm not a torrent <laughs> user. So, But it's like, whoa, number yeah. two is BitTorrent. So yeah. it's like, uh, okay. Yeah. Now, you know, is email still in that list anymore? I don't think it is. Used no, to be that was fact, like number one. Amazing things got bumped off the list. They don't even show up on the chart anymore yeah. that were, that were interesting. Strange. So um, uh, we talked last week about the breach in Chrome's sandbox remember that the the french uh security group vu pen came up with a zero day exploit against chrome and i was skeptical and, i said I'd, i would like to see the uh code well they what happened anyone. was there was a, a little bit of a twitter war it turned out uh google's uh three three days later google's chris evans who is their information security engineer and a tech lead he tweeted it's a legit pwn but if it requires Flash, it's not a Chrome phone. Except that Flash so comes it, with Chrome. It turns yes, it does. But it does turn out that this was a Flash exploit. So this was Flash in the sandbox. Interesting. That allowed that allowed Flash to get out of the sandbox. But I mean, Google's the one who said, "Look, we're sandboxing Flash. That's why we bundle Flash. We want to make it safer." So they they you know they're the ones who were you know trying to protect yep. us. Yep, I agree, and in so fact, they, the, I, I don't think that that gets them off the hook by any it, means. Well, and the VU Pen guys tweeted in reply. They said flash bugs are equivalent to Chrome sandbox escapes from an attacker's perspective. Right? They don't. You're attackers. thinking like developers. Right. It's and not so, our code. Exactly. <laughs> it's our product. It's not Although our code. It's, co it's it's code that we that we install by default in <laughs> the browser so that it's able to run. Yeah, that, that's a good point. You are that is thinking like a developer. Okay, so I completely forgot last week, Leo, to talk about LastPass. Um, well, didn't we shortly, talk about it two weeks ago? I thought we did. No, what happened was this all happened just after we began after we finished recording. Oh, that's so right. I so I did a special appearance with Tom on that's on right. this week on this week in tech. Right. And and I, I and I, I thought, well, why is everyone asking me why I forgot why I didn't mention LastPass last week? And so, looking at my own tweet stream, I realized, oh, I said I was going to. You have my so, problem, which is what I do so many shows. <laughs> of course, we talked about the LastPass issue ad nauseum, but but that's right. not on this show. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I have to do so briefly. Um, essentially, what happened for those who didn't see my special appearance on this weekend in no tnt it, tech news tnt today. tech news today right 
which I did that afternoon with with, with Tom because we don't, you and I had already recorded it, but this was important. Um, the uh, the guys at Last Pass saw some traffic, some just sort of like traffic volume that they couldn't explain, and they they didn't know what it was because it's all encrypted. So they're just seeing blobs going back and forth of pseudo-random stuff, but it looked uncharacteristic to them. And so just, I mean, that's all it took. I love it that they blew the whistle on themselves being proactive. Yes. I mean, as far as we know, there there wasn't even a breach. We don't even know. Right. Exactly. They just wanted to be extra cautious. I love that. It was very impressive. Yeah. Um, So... What they did was they they sent out the word to to their to users to change their master password because the worst that could have happened and and this is what I talked about on on the on with with, with Tom the worst that could have happened is that an attacker could have gotten the hash of the the, the hash that they use for authenticating users and the user's encrypted blob. Some people don't understand the way LastPass works and thought that a breach of LastPass's database security immediately meant that bad guys were able, consequently, to decrypt the blob. But that's the whole reason I endorse LastPass is LastPass themselves cannot decrypt that blob. So, for example, you don't have to worry about them responding to an FBI subpoena for your information. They can't. They don't have the ability to decrypt the information. And that means that an attacker who gets what they have can't do it either. So they don't have it to give. Now, the, the, the only weakness would be a brute force attack against the hash. And we've talked about that, what that means also. So if you had a a good master password for LastPass, then the algorithm is your email address is lowercase because email addresses are not case-sensitive, so, so LastPass wanted to eliminate the possibility that you would be entering your email address with different case when you're trying to authenticate to LastPass, to log on to LastPass, than you normally use. Since email doesn't care, they don't care either. So that you, you lowercase the email address, then you, you merge that with, um, with your um, password and you that's hashed to create the private key which you use to encrypt your database that never leaves your browser client then your password is hashed again with that key and that's what is sent to to lastpass to authenticate you so what they what so so again they're getting a hash of your password and your secret key, which itself is generated from a hash of that password and your email address after it's lowercase. So 
And hashes, hash functions are, are de beautifully designed to be one way. They used SHA-256, the strongest state-of-the-art hash we have, generating a 256-bit result. Or a, So certainly strong enough. I guess SHA-512 obviously is twice longer, but it's not clear there's any point in, right. it, in using that. And so, so what an attacker would have to do would be to repeat that process with every possible password and that is they, do did go one extra by doing multiple uh salts is um, that the one we that, talked about last week well that's actually what they're going to do they're when, going when to they do. Okay. when they looked at what the vulnerability what the theoretical vulnerability was it would be somebody using a very weak password like a dictionary word or something the kind of password that no one should now be using which could which because it was weak there could be you could mount an offline attack where the user's email address, which again the attacker might have because um, LastPass does have that, um, that would be hashed with this test brute force password. That would get hashed. Then it would be hashed again to produce the authentication token. And if the attacker did have that, they would look for a match. That would then they still wouldn't be able to decrypt the user's data. But then they would be able. They then they would have the the password as a consequence of going forward through the two hashing functions, brute forcing it. Then they could authenticate to LastPass and obtain the blob, which then they then then they would be able to decrypt it. So, so if bad guys got the the database and if users had weak master passwords then there's a possibility of doing a over some length of time a brute force attack and so erring way on the side of caution the last pass guy said okay just change your master password we're sorry to put you through the inconvenience you don't have to change any of your other site passwords just the one master password that way nothing that might have been taken if anything was and we don't know that anything was nothing that might have been taken would 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 we would still be vulnerable even to a brute force attack. And they also and the, offer, and I use uh, two-factor authentication. So if you use that, you're safe too. Yeah, I was going to say, anybody with a YubiKey, for example, um, absolutely was safe because, again, these guys have looked for every opportunity to help make us secure. They take the fixed portion of the front of the YubiKey token and mix that in also, which no attacker could ever have. So... There's just no way to, to, to compromise if you were using the multi-factor authentication. So um, bottom line is uh, they responded immediately. Their, their site was overwhelmed by people who were needing to change their master password. They're now thinking, well, maybe we did overreact, frankly, but, you know, better safe than sorry. Now, the one thing they're going to do is, and we talked about this last week, this notion of key stretching, and that, and that, that that's what you were referring to leo they're going to the 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 problem with the with brute forcing a a hash is hash functions have been opt ha, there is hardware for example to really perform a lot very fast sha256s for example that's how bitcoin mint guys are using gpus in order to in order to try to sign uh, and and generate the hashes for the Bitcoin transactions is so you know there's code exists for GPUs 
um, in people's machines to do SHA-256 very fast. So the solution is to require a great many of them per authentication. And the number I saw was 100,000, which is to say to authenticate the SHA-256 function would be run Two uh, would w- 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 be run one hundred thousand times, meaning its output put back into its input, maybe mixed with something else, and then that generated and done again. And so, what that does is, no matter how fast a brute force attack on that content could be mounted, this would slow it down by one hundred thousand times, because every single guess would have to be done a hundred thousand times. So I'm going to keep track of that and let our users know whether that gets implemented and when. But, I mean, basically, they've just done, they had done uh, everything they could before. This further raises the bar, and it's not clear whether actually anyone even got data from them. Whether the bar needed to be raised. Yeah. Good. Um, I think that's a, a really a good model for uh, companies like Sony and others. I mean, be proactive. Yeah. Jump on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I, uh, in miscellaneous news, I wanted to mention that I've been receiving really nice feedback from people who took my recommendation of Mark Rosinovich's Zero Day book to heart. Uh, many of them saying, you know, they're, they're all, are only a few chapters in and hooked already. So people are liking it a lot. Um, there was a really interesting TED talk uh, about the danger of filter bubbles, as it was called. Um, I tweeted the URL for that and recommended that my followers uh, check it out. You can also find it if, if, if people are not following me or aren't using Twitter, just, um, uh, of course, you can always look at my Twitter stream by going twitter.com slash SGGRC, and you can see everything that I have tweeted recently uh, that I've been referring to as it happens in this podcast, um, or just go to YouTube and just search for filter bubble. Um, it's a really interesting nine-minute TED Talk, um, which, which demonstrates sort of the, the social issue of the fact that increasingly uh, the, res- the results that we're getting from searches are being customized for us and, and what that means. I just I recommend it to our listeners. It's, it's a little scary um, this guy doing some research had two of his two different friends both Google 9-11. And he shows the radically different search results that Google returned because of what Google knows about these people. Well, only and, if you're logged in. I mean, if you log out of your Google account, nothing. Is that the case? Yes. Okay. Because, I mean, they... So you Google have to has, opt into that, basically. Google's have has cookies and IP addresses. Yeah, they don't, and, no, no, they so keep forth. they keep. You can log, you can opt out, you can log in and opt out of of history. Okay, uh, tell them not to keep history. If you don't log in, they have no history. Okay, and so uh, you will not get customized results. He also shows um, a, a result with with Facebook, with Facebook noting over time the kinds of things he clicks on, well, and that Facebook, true. in trying to do a better job of giving him what he wants, he ends up not seeing information that you know he wishes he were seeing anyway uh uh youtube filter bubble search for that i it's really interesting nine minutes just it's you know apparently it's happening uh 
more and more and uh, and worth just being aware of. It, it's intentional and it's designed to make your search results better. But yeah. if you don't like it, you can, at least with Google, obviously Facebook, you can't turn it off because you're always logged in. Well, and in general, I mean, search in general, there, there is a, we know that, for example, the reason we're being given custom advertising is that advertisers are able to charge more when their when their message is going to an audience that's more likely to care about what they're what what they're offering. So in in general we're seeing the web attempting to conform to who it thinks we are and you know that's why tracking is become so controversial is a lot of people sort of get an, have an ick factor relative to the notion of of profiles being assembled about them. And of course those are being used to customize their experience of the web and he just brings up the point that well you know maybe that's not such a good thing in all cases yeah be aware of it i guess yeah, yeah. my my favorite tweet of the week uh was sent to me from lurid sorcerer that's his his twit handle it's uh, andrew lingenfelter he said the online software license option i'd like to see would have a third option you know, you have a agree and disagree. The third option would read, didn't read the license, but agree anyway. Which I just got a kick out of. Well, that's what I do. <laughs> that's what we all do. That's what we all do. No, no one reads the license. Yeah. You can't. So I think it's it'd impossible. be nice to have that checkbox. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be nice for, for, for a third a third option. And uh, uh, someone else this morning, Simon Bodger in Canada, uh, he said, Steve, love the P acronym PEE he says as a parent and remember that P stands for pre-egression encryption that is encrypting stuff before it leaves your system in order to be safe with your data in the cloud pre-egression encryption so he says as a parent i'm always saying before we leave did you pee sounds like good advice for my data too <laughs> p i love the acronym yeah, well, it's I've had some interesting tweets about that. I bet you did. <laughs> that was that was a fun one. And uh, a listener of ours, Jeffrey Wurzbach, he said, uh, "I downloaded a copy of Spinrite from someone, uh, or borrowed. I sorry, I borrowed a copy of Spinrite from someone after what? Spinrite. Well, you know that happens. I recognize that. But he says after Spinrite unbroke my machine, oh. I decided to buy it. Yeah." My computer was taking a very, 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 got three varies there, long time to boot Windows. Both my main boot disk and my secondary disks were randomly powering up and down. I suspected something was broken in the hardware of the disk. But not having the money for a new computer, I had to do something. So I used Spinrite on the main disk and was able to get the computer to boot about 50% faster and get all of my critical data onto my network storage drive. Spinrite saved me many hours of frustration and four-letter words. If only I had Spinrite four years ago when my parents' computer died. So the good news is he uh, tried it, liked it, bought it, and has it now Yay. For, for, for the next disaster. Yay. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that, Jeffrey. We're going to, uh, I want to talk about uh, random number generation in just a Ooh, little bit. Yes. Uh, and this isn't exactly an ad, but I do want to give a plug uh, to our friends at Restoration Hardware because, you know, we're building a new studio, as you know. Actually, two mm -hmm. plugs I want to give. If people want to buy a brick in the new studio, we have a wall of honor, and you can put your name on the brick, your Twitter handle, your Facebook page, whatever it is you want to share with the world. Uh, and you can find out more about that at bricks.twit.tv. And then we're asking a lot of 
uh, companies to help out. That's another way, you know, I don't have a million dollars to build this studio. <laughs> so we're asking others to help out. And the folks at New Tech have been very kind. They've, they've uh, given us a TriCaster. We're getting lights from Kinaflow. We're getting mics from Bob High. A lot of companies. And you know what's really cool is we're getting furniture from a company called Restoration Hardware. You must, you know Restoration Hardware, right? I don't know if I do, yeah. I don't know if they're only in uh, California. Um, I really love their stuff. They're really uh, um, unique-looking furniture. I've haunted Restoration Hardware for a long time. And our studio designer, uh, Roger Ambrose, when I told him I want to do kind of a um, a retro look, he said, oh, let's get a deal with Restoration Hardware. So we, we approached them uh, about getting products uh, for the studio. And wait till you see these kind of, I, don't, I guess, steampunk things that we're going to be putting in here are just amazing. And uh, so I want to just thank them for their contribution and point people also to the fact that if you want to uh, if you want to find out more about Restoration Hardware there's a great iPad and iPhone app now <laughs> No kidding Yeah would I lie to you Oh yeah. my goodness Well this uh, is now I'm looking at this their source book which is like their like their big catalog we get a little small and, catalog at and home. we and we should explain that it's sort of an odd name Leo I mean it's they don't have hammers and nails I think it might have been a hardware store at first I don't know I mean I think it's I think it's changed quite a bit uh, from their original. Now, I just love, I don't know if, you, I love going in uh, Restoration Hardware and just browsing around. But their source book, which is over 300 pages, I don't, if you want to save trees, you can get it on your iPhone or iPad and and browse around. And if you want to see, you know, oh, that's kind of cool looking, double tap it and you can you can zoom in on it. Don't double tap it like I just did. And you can even go and order it uh, online. So I really think Restoration Hardware is fantastic. In terms of the uh, whoops, the uh, quality of their product, and uh, I just wanted to tell people <laughs> they really want me to buy this lounge. <laughs> all right, all right, I'll buy it. We have a lot of restoration hardware at home, and I was really pleased when that when they said, "Yeah, we'll help you out with the studio." So wait till you see the new studio and some of the cool stuff we're getting. And thanks to a Restoration Hardware uh, for uh, for sponsoring us. The home and outdoor and garden source books are now available for the iPhone and the iPad version 2.0 um, is out. Let's talk randomization. So, yeah. Um, one of the things, and I, I mentioned this briefly last week, that sort of annoys me sometimes is the people who, who make the blanket statement that security through obscurity is no security at all. Um, because the fact is all security depends upon obscurity. It just depends upon having and knowing what the attack model is and an understanding what needs to be obscure. So let's, let's draw an example. Um, say that you had a, a, a non-keyed cipher algorithm that is a, an encryption algorithm that did not use a key. So it was just this algorithm that when you, when you ran it, you put in something and out came a blob that was encrypted. And you'd think, wow, that's fantastic. You know, that's great. The problem is you absolutely have to keep the algorithm secret because the only protection that you have that's created by this algorithm is the algorithm itself. So, so in order for this to be effective, that has to be kept absolutely secret. If it gets out, then anybody can can look at what's been encrypted and decrypt it or or 
or impersonate you by encrypting something themselves. The, the, the point is that that's a, that's a perfect example of bad crypto and bad security because you're inherently depending upon the algorithm being kept secret. Now, contrast that to the way we know things are correctly being done these days. We have public algorithms where, I mean, they're, they're public from day one. You know, they're, they're public competitions, as we saw with the AES competition, to end up choosing Rheindahl to be the, 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 the standard cipher that so many people are now using. So, I mean, it was way public. It was taken apart by academicians. It was analyzed. It was, it was, it was really torn apart. The reason we can do that, though, is there's only one reason, and that is it's a keyed cipher, which is to say the, the strength of the result is the combination of what is absolutely well-known, which is to say the cipher itself, and, and it's because it's well-known that we trust it because academicians, cryptographers have been able to pound on it. They've been able to like reduce its strength by, by ha having it go fewer rounds and, and like watch it work and see how quickly as you increase the number of rounds the cipher goes, it becomes impossible to, to, to reverse engineer it. So, so it's two things that the, the total secrecy that we get is composed of something we know, which is how this algorithm works, but something which is still obscure. That is, it's still kept secret. And that's the key which is used to run the cipher. So it is, it is not the case that, that we get security if everything is known. It's that we carefully design what what parts of our system are known but we but we then still have secrets which we keep and the reason then that we need in in cryptography we need random numbers is that we we don't want an attacker through through any means at their disposal to be able to guess what the secret is we're going to have a secret in SSL communications, you know, uh, uh, HTTPS that, that we've talked about. There is a secret. There is a handshake which goes on between the endpoints where, where they, ex they arrive at a secret by using random number generators. And, it, and we depend upon the randomness for security. For example... This hasn't always been done correctly. The very first version of Netscape's SSL, Netscape back in, in the original early browser days, they were the designer of, the first, of SSL version 1.0. They used the time of day, the process ID, and something else. There were three components. I don't remember what they were. But the point was they weren't, and, and they used those, to seed the random number generator, which their SSL connections then used for establishing secure handshakes. And it wasn't long after, but they, net, but they didn't publish it. They kept it secret. And of course, these are the kinds of secrets you can't keep. A year later, some researchers figured out what Netscape was doing, looked at, at the fact that they were using time of day, process ID, and 
one other factor, but still predictable. And it turns out that something like process ID, it's like, well, we don't always know we're going to have the same process ID, but if you start a computer up and you do a couple things with it, it's typically going to be this, or it's going to be some range which allows an attacker from the whole possible spectrum of process IDs to zero in on, well, it's probably going to be one of these. The point is they didn't start with enough randomness, and it turns out that version one of their SSL protocol could be attacked by virtue of this, its lack of good random number generation. So we've, we've seen that uh, over and over. And in fact, it's a lesson which what some people don't learn very well. Microsoft um, in 07 had the same problem with um, the, the uh, pseudo-random number generator that was in Windows 2000, and that's the same one that's in XP. Um, they had some researchers who, who, and again, Microsoft didn't publish this. They, they maintained it, you know, they kept it strictly secret and tried to obscure it. Some researchers ended up taking it apart, figuring out how it works, and were then able to demonstrate that because of, of, the, of what Microsoft had done, the decisions they had made were, were not cryptographically sound, and they were able to, if they were ever able to obtain the state of the random number generator, then they were able to know everything about its future. So if something ever got into your computer... They, they could take a snapshot of it, and there was, there was no more mystery, even though Microsoft had gone to some effort to, to try to enforce that. It just it, it wasn't done well. So, so there's a strong incentive for saying whatever it is that is done, in order to have it cryptographically sound, you really need to have it looked at by people. You need, you need it to be public, never, never secret, and you need to just say, this is what I have done. Um, what does the world think about it? Have I forgotten anything? Because we know mistakes can happen. So, so one of the problems that computers have, as we've discussed, is that they're 100% deterministic machines. If you start the computer in a known state and it goes through a series of processes, it's always sometime later going to arrive at another state, that is, at, at a given state. It's, it's adding and subtracting, multiplying, dividing, it's jumping, it's doing the things it's doing, but it's always following instructions, which, unless they change, what it does and where it arrives is not going to change. So there's this, there's this notion of, of state, which is, is a, is a, can, can be thought of as a quantity. For example, I was talking about last week when I, when I, or two weeks ago, when I introduced this, the idea of taking a 32-bit integer and using a simple algorithm called a linear congruential pseudo-random number generator, where you multiply that value by a constant and then you add a different constant, and it produces a new result. And if you choose the mul the, the multiplier and the the um, add end correctly, that that 32 bits will jump all over the place until it comes back to the original one, that, and it'll occupy the full every every possible combination of 32 bits 
before it returns back to the beginning. Um, the problem is that it is a, a very weak algorithm. It's simple to see to for like a, a cryptographer would just not take two seconds to figure out what this thing was doing and be able to predict the entire future of of numbers being generated. The other problem it has, though, is that its state is only 32 bits. That is, the, the entire, the, 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 it, at no time can it have more complexity than that. That is, it's, it's got one of 32-bit values, and it's next going to move to a different one of 32 bits. And th there, there's no way for, for it to be more unknown than that. So, so what we try for in, in contemporary pseudo-random number generators is a much, much more entropy, much more state, so that, so that the system is not easily knowable. And if someone did get, if a bad guy somehow got a snapshot of it at a given time, there would still the the future is not completely predictable. That's key um, for for real security. You, you, we 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 can often assume that the bad guys cannot get into the system. For example, if someone eavesdropping on an SSL communication, well, we want a protocol and a random number generating system which is strong against someone looking at all of our packet traffic, and no matter how many connections we establish, if, a, if there was a man in the middle or someone sniffing our, uh, the initiation of connections uh, over SSL, we would want them, no matter how much they looked at the output, never to be able to guess what the, what the past or the future had been. Sometimes we don't have... We, we, we don't have strength. For example, a malicious process could get into the computer where it has access to the machine and could get a snapshot of the pseudo-random number generating system. If we're trying to prevent against that, then we need some ongoing source of entropy always sort of being added into a, to a pool. And cryptographers talk in terms of entropy pools. The idea being that that you feed in anything that you can get which is not predictable by an attacker, certainly not one outside the machine, and often not one in the machine. Um, that would require them to constantly be monitoring your random number, number generator. And frankly, we're really not designing our systems to be, to be strong against an attacker in the machine, but rather... You know, if, if we if we generate a a large random key that we use to encrypt our drive or we use to to encrypt uh, communications, the point is that we we want anyone coming along afterwards to have no basis for knowing what that key was, how we arrived at that key. So so we're still faced with a problem of of where do we get this kind of, of true random information. Historically, all kinds of things have been done. What we want is, we want the notion of, of uncoupled independent events where, where things happen that are not related to 
events that have already happened in the past or would happen in the future. A, 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 a popular source, for example, is some sort of electrical noise. Um, there's noise generated in electrical processes that are the result of, of quantum fluctuations, um, low levels of heat, low, uh, low levels of, of photon radiation entering the system. Um, there's, a, there, there's a, for example, been a project where a, a, a CCD imaging array, a charge-coupled device imaging array, is put in a, in a completely black box. And it turns out that even though there's absolutely no light getting to this imaging array, the signal it outputs still has some non-zero content. There's, there's noise. It's like, it's like sort of imaging hiss, and it's extremely random. There is, there is absolutely no way for an attacker to know what that hiss is going to be from one instant to the next. Um, another possibility is just using the, the least significant bit of an analog to digital converter. For example, the, the sound input on, on a sound card, even with nothing plugged in, there's, you, you typically don't get a, an absolute flat line. The, the, you, you get a few values in the least significant bits, which is just noise in the amplifier that, that feeds into the analog to digital converter. So, and, and that again, it won't be following a pattern. It'll just, it's just, it's noise. It's not exactly predictable. And, and that's what you want. Or a radio, just, you know, that hiss you hear when you tune a radio in between carrier um, frequencies is just the, the electronics in the radio sort of just listening to what's going on um, in the environment. And that white noise that you hear is also not exactly predictable. Or a Geiger counter, um, which is 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 uh, measuring individual photons, wh which are coming in and ionizing the gas in the Geiger tube, is producing a not a not absolutely predictable series of events. And famously, uh, SGI, who years ago wanted a good source of real random um, content actually patented they have patent 5732138 which is aiming cameras at lava lamps and using the, the, <laughs> the, the that's a chaotic system i think it absolutely is yeah you, you cannot i mean you could stare at it no matter how, no matter how long you stare at the lava lamp you really don't know what it's going to do you cannot predict what it's going to do and so so sgi set up a lab a darkened room where they had cameras looking at lava lamps. They were digitizing the images of the lava, which is, you know, hot wax moving through that fluid. And, and as you said, Leo, it's a chaotic system. You cannot predict what it's going to do. Um, more recently, there are some very good random number generators using a partially silvered mirror. For us, when we look at a partially silvered mirror, we can sort of see through it and sort of not. That is, we, 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 we'll, 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 we'll sort of both see what's on the other side of it and what the mirror is reflecting. But at the quantum level, what that actually means is that some light photons 
are reflected off of it and some go through. That that's you know you need that behavior in order to partially see through a mirror. What that means is that you can put a photo detector, a photon detector on one side of it and have it count the events of things that go through. And it turns out that's quantum uncertainty down at the quantum mechanics level, and it is extremely random. It is not producing a, a, a predictable result. It may not be 50-50, but it turns out you really don't need 50-50-ness in order, to, in order to generate a source of something that is, while it may not be purely random, it is, it is absolutely unknowable. So um, then there's other things that have been done. For example, people have looked at the, at the arrival time of internet packets, pack, you know, network traffic packets. And in fact, anything that you do, if you have sufficiently high resolution in, in a counter, in a timer, and that's the key. What's really neat about our current, you know, um, trans gigahertz machines, we've got, you know, 2.4 gig, 3.0 gig, and so forth. There's a counter in all of our Intel chips, and non-Intel chips have them too, that is running at the speed of that system clock. It is running at 3 billion, that is gigahertz, 3 billion counts per second. Now, if you... If you took a snapshot of that timer when a, a network packet arrived and then another network packet and another network packet. Well, if you were if you didn't have much resolution, if that counter weren't running very fast, then you wouldn't be really getting much randomness, much entropy from that. But with it running at 3 billion counts per second when when even if you tried to send packets to your computer at an exactly perfectly timed rate, variations in the packet assembly, in the, in the, the interrupt system, in the computer, um, I mean, just three billion counts is so fast relative to sort of the, the, the real world events that are happening that the least significant bits, the, you know, the, 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 the one bit, the two bit, the four bit, they're, they're absolutely unpredictable. Well, and that means you can use other things that are happening. You can use the timing of reads and writes on disk drives because the, we, as we've spoken about in the past, disk drives are not spinning at an absolutely constant rate. There, the, the the sector timing is used to servo the drive to keep it running at about the right speed, um, as is the distance from the heads to the platters. But that's varying. So that means that if you look closely enough, you're going to get a huge amount of uncertainty in the in the. If you, I mean, again, look closely enough. If you if you use this three gig counter that we have, or two point four or whatever, you just there's no way to predict what the least significant bits are when you take a snapshot of it or when you move the mouse or press keys on the keyboard. They're just, if you're, if you're spinning that counter fast enough, the, the lesser significant digits 
are much more predictable than the least significant digits, which are, you know, in the in the the case of the one bit, it's changing three billion times per second, and you're going to say, okay, you know, now, you know, what, what what is it now? I mean, that that's so fast that gives you really good unpredictability, and then finally, just because you could never have too much randomness. We, na- we know, for example, that the trusted platform module, the TPM, which is in most laptops today, I wish we were seeing it more in desktops. I, I know that there, it is available in some desktops, but not yet universally. Um, the TPM has a true random number generator in hardware in it. There, it's using thermal noise down at, again, at the quantum level in order to... to, to generate an offer on behalf of the system that 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 is hosting this TPM true physical random numbers not pseudo random by you know anytime we have pseudo random we're saying that there's an algorithm which is gen- generating these and but by the nature of an algorithm we know what each number is going to be in succession with a true random number generator it's not algorithmically based. It's just every number that it produces, it's producing freshly. Now, the problem is that the rate at which we're collecting entropy may be lower than the rate at which we need that we want to consume it. Let me say that again. It it may be that the that the rate at which we're producing it or or able to collect new randomness, new entropy is lower than the rate that we want to consume it. So, for example, this the true random number generator in the trusted platform module will have some bandwidth. It'll have some rate at which it's able to give us numbers based on the physical processes that that it is tracking. And you can imagine lava lamps. Yeah. They're chaotic, but they're not moving very fast. So we need more bits. We need more bits. So what has been done is 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 very clever, and this is represented by the the state of the art pseudo random number generators, which, for example, Bruce Schneier has designed. Um, there's one called um, Yarrow that Schneier and John Kelsey designed and a newer one called Fortuna, which, uh, which Bruce designed with Niels Ferguson. Um, the way they work is they have an entropy pool. That is, they have a, a, think of it as a buffer, just a big buffer. And whenever something happens that they can say, okay, well, we're not sure, you know, how much entropy is there but it's probably got some. For example, every, imagine that every time something happened, you you took a snapshot of that three gigahertz counter and added it to the entropy pool. So packets come in, hard drive uh, sector reader write happens, mouse gets moved, keyboard gets hit. Even something like um, the, the the graphics display adapters often have a 60 cycle or a, a refresh interrupt. And... That's not coupled to the counter running um, in the machine. 
that it, it's generated by a, by a separate crystal on the display card, separate from the crystal on the motherboard. So there, you, you, you could, at 60 times a second, you could sample on the display interrupt the exact, the exact count of this 3 or 2.4, whatever it is, gigahertz timer running very fast in the computer and just dump it into the entropy pool. You don't really care how much entropy it has. You just know there's a lot of uncertainty in the least significant bits of that. Nobody can guess. And in fact, if you did, if you, if you, if you plotted them out and people have, you, you, would, you would see absolutely no predictable pattern in those least significant bits. They're, they're, they're just, they're uncoupled and they're related to physical processes down at the quantum level. So what, what state-of-the-art random number generators do is they collect this entropy pool, you know, adding it to this pool until they decide that they have a collected enough of it to reseed a pseudo random number generator. And, and, and for example, um, the, the most recent one, Fortuna, which Bruce and Niels did, they hash the content of the pool to generate a new key for our friend, the AES Rheindahl cipher, which they have being driven by a counter. And so what they, and, and after they have hashed the pool, they empty it, and then they begin again putting new entropy into it. Meanwhile, they have an absolutely unknowable key which is the key to the AES cipher, which they're driving from a counter. Now, what they know is that they cannot pull from this forever because the counter will wrap. And we can't ever allow the counter to wrap around with the same key or it will start, it will be reproducing the identical sequence of pseudo random numbers that it, that originally produced. But that's not a problem. The, the, you know, we've got 128 bits that we're encrypting with Rheindahl, which will last us a long time relative to the rate that we're able to collect new random things happening from the environment, which, which collect up to, we only really need, we need at least 128 bits of, or, or for example, 256 if you wanted to use a, um, a 256-wide uh, key for a Rheindahl. So we, as soon as we collect, like maybe say 1,024, just so we know that we've got more, then we hash that down into 256 and we rekey the cipher so that it is, it's constantly being rekeyed, but it's able to give us a tremendous bandwidth of pseudo-random data which is based on the truly random data which we're accumulating in this pool at a much lower rate. So we, you know, our physical processes won't give us, you know, megabytes per second of, of true randomness, but they will give us enough that we can use that to constantly reseed a pseudo-random number generator which can run at whatever speed we want. And... And that's what we're doing now in state-of-the-art crypto systems is we're using some sort of physical processes to accrue 
tools of true entropy, which is absolutely unpredictable, which we then hash into a key to drive a very simple and very efficient pseudo-random number generator, which gives us, while not absolutely random numbers, it meets our need of, of both having a high bandwidth and then being absolutely unpredictable. And that's all we need. We, don't, we, we can't know. No attacker looking at the past or future can know what the number is we're, we're going to have now because of, the, because of the strength of this cipher, even when just driven by a counter with an unknown key, um, you know, we, we, that much we know we've proven. And by using an entropy pool, there's no way for, for us or anyone else to know what it is that we're going to be giving to that um, counter um, and cipher as its key from one moment to the next. And so we've solved the problem very cleverly, even though we've got technically a, de a deterministic system. There are enough non-deterministic bits, literally, that are available because of the resolution at which we're able to measure these, these various physical processes that they're un unpredictable, unknowable, and they give us a, uh, a source of absolutely cryptographically strong pseudo-random numbers. So at now, whatever speed we want them. Now we understand that weird JavaScript page that you put together. <laughs> well, actually, yeah. Um, what I did on that JavaScript page, I mentioned to it week before last. It's grc.com slash r ampersand d slash js dot htm. What I'm, um, what I'm doing there is I am tracking mouse and keyboard movements. But the problem is I don't have access to... In, in JavaScript to a really high precision counter. I've only got a millisecond resolution, which is, I mean, it's better than nothing, but it's not really good. So the way I solved the problem of, of, a, of a client, a JavaScript client, a browser, having really good entropy is I, I have GRC give the page a, a, a starter 256 bits and then everything the user does even well everything the user does at their end is unknowable by grc so i i, I seed the random number generator with a something that is really good that is a, a pseudo random number coming from grc the problem is from a security standpoint I know, I, GRC, know what I gave the user. So, right. so we want to immediately diverge what GRC provided from what the user's going to use. So, for example, the JavaScript takes a snapshot of the time of day when it starts to load. It takes another snapshot of the time of day when it, when it finishes loading. It takes a... It takes a it, it asks the JavaScript pseudo-random number generator, which is not very good, but it's, it, it's got an unknown state to GRC. It asks it for 270 bits, which, which the JavaScript pseudo-random number generator provides. And so the point is, everything that I can capture that is going on on the user side is poured into a hash that hashes what 
GRC provided, immediately diverging it in a way GRC can never know because it's happening all on the client side. So we get the best of both worlds. We're not only dependent, that is the, the, the user's browser, whatever process it's doing, isn't only dependent upon randomness coming from his computer because we know that's not very good. But, but I'm able to provide, IGRC, am able to provide a starter, which is very good, but we don't want me to know what the user is going to use. So we immediately hash everything we can on top of it to diverge it from anything GRC knows. I mean, and if you just hash one bit, it's instantly going to be a different value. And we're just, you know, I have no idea what the user's time of day clock is, what, you know, how long the page is going to take to download. Certainly not what the state of their JavaScript pseudo random number generator is. So, you know, you put all that together and it's, you know, extremely strong. And it changes as I move my mouse. So it's always different. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I, every, sing, every event is, is rehashing the, that event timing and any details like the X and Y position of the mouse. Uh, any information I get is being poured into the hash and rehashing the key so it's constantly evolving and ends up being very secure. Yeah, cool too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's neat. Well, thank so, you for filling us in on random. Yeah, I think we that's never it. That's everything we need to know about random. I think it is. We've never talked about it before, but it is crucial that we have, that, that for, for crypto processes, that we have a source of really good random numbers. And uh, I hope Microsoft is listening yeah. because, you know, this is better than anything that they were doing back with, with Windows 2000 and XP. And I do think that they have evolved their technology since then because they, they finally understand it's important. Yeah. Yeah, it's fa I, I think it's also, a uh, from a pure computer science point of view, a fascinating conversation. It's, mm. it's certainly uh, practical, but it's also interesting. Well, and, um, you know, the NIST has, a, has published a, a set of tests that can be used to measure the quality of randomness. There's like 16 of them. Monobit frequency, block frequency, <laughs> cumulative sums, runs... Longest run of ones, binary matrix rank, DFT spectral, non-overlapping template matchings, <laughs> overlapping template matchings, Maurer's universal statistical test, approximate entropy, random excursions, random excursions variant, serial, Lempel-Ziv compression, and linear complexity. And, and it's funny because... Some very good random number generators fail various of these tests in different ways. Really? And some That's interesting. Yes. Huh. Some, some pseudo-random number generators fail them in different ways. But I, I, I got a kick out of that Lempel-Ziv compression. That's LZ compression. That's the original technology uh, that we all use zip. in like, you know, PK-Zip and yeah, everything. Yeah, that, that is the, the, the Zip compression. And, of course, as we've talked about it, one of the measures of randomness is compressibility oh. pure, right because yeah. anything with a pattern can be compressed because the compressor finds the pattern and uses that in order to get compression but pure random noise is incompressible there's nothing that a compressor can latch on to uh, in order to make the result smaller so that's kind of cool yeah and then 
then uh, DFT spectral, that, that, that would be discrete Fourier transform, which would be to say, do a Fourier transform of the noise to see if, there's, if there are any frequencies which are occurring in it because it ought to be absolutely flat spectrum. There should be no peaks of any particular frequency, it's sort of like you'd see in a gas chromatograph, you know, where you have like, you know, peaks right, that are identifying right, right. something. So, so these are tests which are really ruthless uh, and very rigorous uh, that the, NI, the NIST has, has um, solidified on uh, as, as part of their formal publication of like, is this random enough? Fascinating stuff. Cool stuff. But hardly random. <laughs> in fact, you could find this show. Right there on the internet at grc.com. Steve makes uh, 16 kilobit versions available as well for those of you who have bandwidth caps or don't want to spend a lot of time downloading. Uh, transcripts, that's the smallest version if you like to read along. And all the show notes, uh, including that R&D uh, page, is at grc.com. That's also where you'll find Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, a must-have. If you've got hard drives, you need them. Next week, it a works. Q&A episode, go to grc.com slash feedback to leave your questions and you can follow steve on twitter at sggrc grc.com is the thing to the thing to know just memorize that gibson research corporation uh you can also uh, watch us do this show every wednesday live 11 a.m pacific 2 p.m eastern at live.twit.tv or subscribe on itunes or any other podcast client or just go to twit.tv slash sn for security now. And we've got all the episodes there and uh, all the subscription buttons you could want. And the chance to buy a brick <laughs> for the brick twit house. Thank you so much, Steve. We will see you next week. Talk to you then, my friend. Security now. Security now.